Welcome back to the Kimley Horn Perspectives Podcast. In this two-part episode, Aaron Murphy leads a conversation about the importance of equity in transportation. Joined by Kimley Horn Transportation Planners John Martin and Danielle McRae, along with Amy Edwards, board chair for Dimitri House, a not-for-profit group in Rochester, New York, these episodes explore the history of making transportation projects more equitable, strategies to effectively engage and include diverse perspectives in the planning process, and how current projects are working to reverse the adverse societal effects from past transportation projects that resulted from less inclusive decision making. Take it away, Erin. Hello, everybody. My name is Erin Murphy. I'm a transportation planner with Kimley Horn of DC, and today we're going to have a discussion about putting equity at the center of transportation planning. Um, I have a few panelists with me, John Martin, Danielle McRae, and Amy Edwards. Um, and amongst ourselves, we're going to have some discussion um, about what our responsibility to our communities and for those of us who are engineers or planners um, to our profession and understanding how we can best bring equity into transportation planning. And with that, I'll hand it off to John um, so he can introduce himself. Well, hello, everybody. My name is John Martin. I'm a transportation planner and engineer with Kimley Horn Associates in Reston, Virginia. I've worked on transportation planning projects in, in, in Washington, D.C., in Rochester, New York, and all over Virginia, and really across the U.S. Um, and in our planning work, we really strive to include as many voices as possible in developing transportation solutions. And really, the more perspectives, the better. And we have some excellent project examples that we want to talk about here in a, in a few minutes. Um, but, but Aaron has also asked us to, to, to share our background a little bit. And so a quick quick blurb about me, a little history would be that um, as a kid, I was bused. I grew up in a town where we were, it was um, a part of desegregation where as a, from sixth or ninth grade, I was bused to a part of the, uh, the, of the city in Raleigh, North Carolina that was historically black. And when, in, when I went to high school, I went to a high school close to where I lived and, and the, so the black kids were bused to my side of town. Um, it was desegregation. That was what was going on in the seventies. Um, and black kids from predominantly black areas. I mean, in Raleigh, um, the, the ratio was about two thirds white, one third black. And what the city decided to do was, was make sure that that same ratio was, was at every single city school. While later on, I learned that it was a major social milestone. I remember just simply seeing more black people at my school. It was, and, and we just got to know each other as kids. And I realized more and more over the years that growing up in that era, um, it really provided this a positive influence on me. But that experience gave me a perspective on the culture of, of white people and black people working together. I mean, we all just worked together. Um, we watched our, our adult leaders work together to educate kids, solve issues, and really improve our community. Um, so that was my growing up experience. And when I got to college, you know, I, um, you know, I was, I was, I saw that. I saw some prejudice. I saw some discrimination from from me from students who came from less diverse communities. Um, and then when I left college and went into the Air Force, um, I learned early on that discrimination wasn't tolerated in any way. Um, there was a lot of, there were, in every Air Force unit I was in. There was a mix of cultures and races, and really where you grew up was more about was more of a discussion topic than anything else. And we all just got along. We worked together to accomplish the mission, right? And so. When I did leave Raleigh and drove across the country to my first Air Force assignment, I quickly learned that not everyone had a Southern accent, that not everyone was Baptist or Methodist or Episcopalian, 
and not everyone was black and white, black or white, right? There were lots of other races, lots of other folks, um, lots of other religions. It was really fun getting to know all those cultures. Um, but that, and those experiences have helped me more readily accept and embrace other cultures. And it's really helped my transportation planning practice. Um, and I've taken this roll your sleeves up together approach in my practice. It's really been a mantra over the years. Um, and it's worked well in many communities. And we've got some great project examples to talk about here in a few minutes. So with that, I'll, I'll turn it over to, uh, to Danielle. You can share a little bit about your experience. Thank you, John. Uh, so I, I think we, we may have more, more things in common than, uh, than, yeah. we, than we have thought. <laughs> um, yes, uh, as Aaron mentioned, my name is Danielle McCray. I am with Kimberly Horn in the uh, Reston, Virginia office. And I am a transportation engineer by training. Most of my practice area, though, is focused on transportation planning, uh, connecting with stakeholders and communities, and shepherding projects or plans through consensus building to implementation. Uh, and that has certainly become a passion of mine that's connecting with communities and individuals and building consensus. And a little bit of that dates back to some of the uh, differences that uh, John alluded to earlier. A little bit about myself, uh, I am from Central Virginia and uh, growing up, uh, I found myself, of course, I am a black female and uh, growing up in my family circles or my social circles as a young person, it was predominantly black uh, and my high school was um, fairly mixed, mostly white and black kids. Um, but as I started to progress along in my educational years uh, to college, whether it was in uh, the governor's school and high school, I started to experience uh, more of my spaces being predominantly white and people not reflecting who I am as an individual or people not looking like me um, in those spaces, whether it was college or um, as I mentioned before, the governor's school or even now in the professional workspace. And uh, I started to question why aren't there more people like me uh, in these spaces. And so that's led me to engage in uh, programs and activities that really try to get, get uh, communities that are traditionally not represented to the table. Uh, that certainly started early on in my career in college. I participated in a lot of um, uh, STEM robotics competitions, coaching high school students, uh, participating with a, a program that's near and dear to my heart, Computers for Kids in Charlottesville, Virginia. Uh, and we were really looking to bridge the digital divide and provide technology and um, access to the internet and uh, computers to kids who didn't have that in their home. Uh, so a little bit of that has uh, translated to my professional career where um, as a professional, I am also seeking to um, employ that same passion for diversity and inclusion in projects that we work on and making sure that the communities we work with um, uh, that we're speaking to and hearing from the voices that may, uh, that may not be represented or may not have a seat at the table. Um, and whether that's through my work with the Safe Routes to School program, where we're trying to encourage younger kids to walk and bike to school, or whether it's through um, engaging underrepresented communities um, in the stakeholder process. So that's a little bit about myself. I look forward to the conversation with you all today. Amy, thanks for joining us today. Um, could we ask the same question of you? I know that um, you're the non-transportation professional in the room, but you've certainly got a lot of experience um, in, in thinking about how people move around and how that impacts their, their days. So could you give us a little bit of perspective on yourself and, and your background? 
For sure. Thanks so much for the invitation. So my name's Amy Edwards. I'm the board chair um, for Dimitri House. We are a local not-for-profit in Rochester, New York. We've been around for about 35 years, and we are focused primarily on food and shelter uh, within our community. Um, so in talking a little bit about equity and transportation, um, you know, I remember being a middle schooler and a high schooler and taking the city bus um, you know, all across the city five days a week for six years in a row. Um, and I became very comfortable uh, taking the city bus, taking, uh, you know, transportation to get me from here to there. And in my years growing up, I have come to realize that my suburban counterparts didn't necessarily have that same experience. Um, so they didn't have any visibility or understanding um, in what it was like to have to take the bus to time your day around public transportation to be at the um, the mercy of that public transportation, which may be affected by the weather, which may be affected by mechanical failures, which may be affected by route changes and all those sorts of things. Um, in finding my way to Dimitri House 20 years ago, my perspective definitely changed. Uh, the lens in which I see my community through, uh, for me, was clarified a, a great deal. Um, I have learned to be actively involved uh, and non-judgmental of our other community members, which is and something that you have to do uh, all the time. You have to make sure that you are telling yourself and reminding yourself that what is important to others um, may not be the same things that are important to you. And from a Dimitri House perspective, focusing on food and shelter, some of the questions around um, equity and transportation that come to mind are getting our clients to and from our food cupboard with their groceries. Uh, how do they accomplish that? How many bus stops is it? Do they have to get all their kids on the bus? How do they make their appointment on time? Um, and the same goes for shelter. Uh, you know, if you're a, if you uh, come to a homeless shelter at 11 o'clock at night in January and it's 10 degrees outside and they're full and you have to go somewhere else, how do you get to somewhere else? Um, how do you get on the bus if you don't have any money or don't have a bus pass or a token? Um, things of that nature. And it even goes for Dimitri House one step further in that, you know, we're helping clients try to find jobs and employment. Um, and figuring out how you're going to get to your job. How are you going to organize daycare? Um, if it's gonna take you 90 minutes on the bus to get to your job, how far is your job from the bus stop? Um, and those things uh, you know, come to mind for us. So um, I find the, the equity and transportation being a very interesting piece of the puzzle overall um, as to how we successfully empower people to be self-sufficient and successful uh, within our community and really within society uh, as a whole. Thanks everybody for the introductions. Um, and I think that you've provided some really interesting context from which we can jump off in our conversations that you know, all of us can be limited by our own lived experience and the value of you know, broadening the connections, um, uh, seeking to understand people that are different from ourselves and then applying that perspective in our professional lives, um, and you know that can be something that we do outside of our outside of our day-to-day -day jobs, um, and 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 bring that bring that back to what we're doing on a day in and day out basis. So I wanted to step back a minute um, because we've we've talked about this terminology equity um, a few times. We've said it, um, and make sure that we sort of put ourselves in the right framework. Um, 
to, to give it a relatively simple definition, equity is the fair distribution of benefits and negative impacts. And so if we think about that in terms of transportation, there are a few key phrases um, probably on the short list and we could go on all day about what this, what this word and what this term means and how it applies to transportation. Um, but transportation that is safe, that is accessible and that means physically, financially and in terms of its usefulness. Transportation, just because it's there, is not inherently useful if it doesn't get you to where you want to go and get you to your place of an employment, your daycare, your groceries, et cetera, um, and is also reliable. Um, and so as we think about how we integrate equity in transportation planning, I, I think that you'll hear some conversation as we move forward about how that um, plays into the process of transportation and by really integrating equity in the process, how we're hopeful that that can turn into outcomes um, that result in that fair distribution of benefits and of negative impacts across, across all communities. Um, so, 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 so important um, that we we bring this lens of equity um, into the transportation planning and that we understand where we as a country have been in terms of the history of transportation planning and land use policies that have brought us to the place of continued race, racial injustice that we are facing today. Um, how we have harmed low-income communities, communities of color, how we have lessened health benefits, how we've hurt the environment, how we have um, really segregated economic opportunity. Um, and so why, um, you know, why understanding why that's part of the puzzle is important um, in, in understanding the lived perspectives of the constituents that we are seeking um, to interact with in our work and to, um, you know, coming out with those equitable outcomes for our communities. So John, I wondered if you could step in here, um, and sorry to ask um, yep. the older gentleman in the room to um, <laughs> give us your perspective as you've lived through um, the, 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 what I'm gonna call the before and after um, of the implementation of the National Environmental Policy Act in 1970, and certainly that comes on the heels of the previous Civil Rights Act. Um, which is really the law um, mandating that we assess environmental impacts of our proposed actions and certainly applies to transportation projects. Okay, Aaron. Yep. Yes, I was here in 1970 on this earth, um, but um, don't quite remember the details of this, so I had to look them up. Um, <laughs> so they're, um, uh, you know, as a um, transportation planning practitioner, um, we, we are beholden to the National Environmental, National Environmental Policy Act, right? It was passed by Congress in 1969, signed by President Nixon in 1970 on January 1st, and it ushered in a new decade where environment, where the environment was really pushed to the forefront in, in transportation planning and in, in transportation and major, major federal projects. Um, so before NEPA, there were a lot of perspectives that we don't have today, right? The automobile was king. The future was going to be auto-centric. So prior to NEPA, especially in the in the major planning efforts following World War II, um, in the 40s and the 50s, so many of those transportation planning decisions were made based on the automobile, but they're also made behind closed doors. Decision makers 
took the path of least resistance in their time, which meant that interstate highways went through low-income neighborhoods or airports were sited on farmland owned by disadvantaged or underrepresented people. Um, when it comes to highways, we're going to talk about two projects, um, one in Rochester, New York, and, and one in Washington, D.C., that are good examples of, of this decision-making before NEPA and in the planning that's going on post-NEPA. Um, so NEPA did usher in a period in which environmental protection was really at the forefront of American policy. Um, NEPA allowed the public to call timeout on some major federal projects that really um, were probably not the best decisions to be made for the future of, of, of communities. Um, so, so where did racial justice come into play? Well, in the 1980s, using NEPA as, as, a, as a tool, environmentalists and citizen activists, including members of the Congressional Black Caucus, and there was a commission also from the United Church of Christ um, that really got involved and they began drawing conclusions about the decisions made on locations of things like hazardous waste sites, locations of highways, locations of airports, and the conclusions they made were just, just that those pre-NEPA decisions were made behind closed doors um, that affected people that were traditionally underrepresented. And this community activism resulted in a national policy of environmental justice it was based on the Civil Rights Act of 1964, and it was implemented by Executive Order 1994, and it was entitled General Actions to Address Environmental Justice in Minority Populations and Low-Income Populations. So today, the NEPA process includes deliberately addressing environmental justice, along with socioeconomic, cultural, and historic considerations. And so for transportation planning, NEPA helps us deliberately address these considerations and really mitigate concerns all in an effort to accomplish this mission of solving transportation challenges. All right, so we have NEPA to follow, we have NEPA to guide us in our transportation planning, um, and we have this environmental justice aspect of NEPA. So that was a quick primer on NEPA and environmental justice. Aaron, would you like to roll into a project example? Certainly, John, and I, I think, um, you know, we have several projects that we've been working on um, together that yep. take the the what was the confluence of urban renewal and interstate highway development and the lack of transportation uh, lack of transparency in in those projects. You know, if we're if we're kind of putting rose-colored glasses on it, and probably um, more nefarious. Uh, purposes if we're if we're looking at it um, from the lens that we're sitting in today but you know really how we can um, seek with the communities that we're working with to um, reconnect those places um, right. and reconnect um, people to to really great places to live so if you could certainly um, talk talk about that project um, that you referenced in Washington, D.C., that is a prime example of, of that sort of historical context and planning that, that's going on today. Great. Okay. So that project is called the Southeast Boulevard Barney Circle Project. It's an environmental assessment that is being finalized today. It's an example, excellent example of both pre-NEPA decisions and then the post-NEPA transportation planning. So imagine, so it's, it's in the late 40s and the automobile is is what everybody thinks is the future of transportation in this country. And the district, D.C., began planning an 18-mile interloop 
freeway. Does that sound familiar, Amy? An interloop freeway in and around DC that was envisioned to be able to get people around. So, and by the late 1950s, this planning led to an interstate designation of this freeway. And one segment of it was, was designed and it was a, about a two and a half mile segment of an eight lane elevator freeway over Virginia Avenue. Um, and that design would have required the condemnation of about 160 houses and a whole bunch of other commercial properties. But by the mid sixties, um, there was a lot of opposition that had built up to this. Um, the, not the least of which was the fact that the reason for this opposition was there wasn't a lot of low income housing that people could relocate to from, from existing low income housing. Um, and they were, they were, this opposition grew in the sixties um, that you can imagine that was in line with the, the equal rights act and, and, and everything else going on then. Um, but a compromise was reached. And so segments of this freeway were built and this segment called the Southeast freeway was built from what is 11th street today over to Barney circle at Pennsylvania Avenue. And then this freeway took less houses. It ended up being, but it still ended up being a barrier between the houses that remained and the riverfront and other destinations. So if you, if you're familiar with DC, you can see the vestiges of freeways that were built, but never connected, um, back in the sixties and seventies. Um, so this freeway was ended up being a backdoor to RFK stadium. Um, if you're familiar with this area, um, when the 11th street project was built in the late two thousands and it was completed in 2014, that, that little segment of Southeast freeway was converted to an arterial boulevard, but it's still not very pedestrian friendly or bike friendly. And so there, so the transportation planners really into the, into the picture. And Aaron and I have worked on this project now for the last couple of years um, where we worked on this environmental assessment process, going through the NEPA process and considering all the, the requirements you're supposed to with NEPA, but we've gone beyond that. We've involved the community. We've, we've done the outreach to the community. We've had public meetings. We've been out to neighborhoods. We've been out to, to civic association meetings, to the advisory neighborhood commission meetings, ANC meetings. We've worked with the district DOT to come up with a concept that would be, that would bring this old freeway up to an urban boulevard and connect with neighborhood streets. So you have pedestrian bicycle, bicycle connections across the, across an urban boulevard, much easier so that, so neighborhoods would be connected to the waterfront by sidewalks, by bike trails, by a bicycle, um, uh, by a pedestrian bridge. Um, it, the, the concept, um, was vetted with the community and it, and, and it, it's on the website at, at Southeast Boulevard. Um, um, it's a project website that, um, it's, it's up there and you can see the concepts are beautiful and, uh, but they were developed in concert with the community. They were, they were vetted and there is consensus on those concepts that they provide the accessibility that the community would like to see. They, um, they provide wide sidewalks, street trees, on-street parking, and green infrastructure. Um, there's also, as part of this potential excess right-of-way, that'll be disposed of, and then that means that's the process where you dispose of right-of-way and then create land for potential potential development as as part of 
of that project, as an outcome of that project. Another unique feature of the Southeast Boulevard project is that the, the, the boulevard is gonna be elevated to the level of, this, of the current neighborhood along L Street in DC. And underneath this elevated Southeast Boulevard is going to be a bus garage, a bus transit support facility. A very unique way of meeting a need within the district for bus maintenance and bus storage and the operations of a bus fleet called the DC Connector. Um, all that was also vetted with the community and some of their concerns were assuaged when we explained in, in lay, layperson terms how this is going to work, that the buses are going to go on either, they're going to access a facility on either end of the, of the, free, of the old freeway of the new urban boulevard, and they're not going to be running through neighborhoods or operating at, at night. Um, so all, all those considerations were brought, brought to bear in this NEPA document called an environmental assessment, um, which, which we're finalizing today. So, uh, so Aaron, I would say that, that from a equity perspective, um, our, our team really did go above and beyond the NEPA process and bring in perspectives from the community. Um, we, we had those public meetings where we, where we had exercises and, and very tactile exercises of showing them the pieces of a, of a street, what can, what can be put together from a cross section, um, how do sidewalks work with bike trails and street trees and, and travel lanes and how does all that work together. Um, we explained the complexity of, of constructing this road, raising it, and, and then how to, how to you know, operate that bus facility underneath. And so we did come up with a solution that makes sense. It's a story that we were able to tell to the citizens and we were able to hear a lot of different voices through that whole process and all those voices influence the outcome of that planning process. And they've been, they, they have um, really helped us get to the point where that environmental assessment is poised to be approved and the project can move forward into design and construction. Thanks, John. I think you've really hit on a key there um, about the, the perspective that we have by mandate of law. Um, and that law is, you know, half a, half a century old at this point about um, where we can transition from limiting harm in our transportation projects to advancing equity in our transportation projects and dialogue with the community. Um, bringing the bringing the community into the conversation and bringing them into the conversation in such a way that they have an opportunity to shape the plan or the project or the policy is is really one of the key um, the key considerations about how we can move together um, how we can move together forward with a common thread. And Danielle, I wonder at this point if you could um, tell us a little bit more about your work um, when you're thinking about transportation planning and specifically um, longer range, tra range transportation planning, which can be relatively amorphous to the community. It may be something that's not as tangible as a project itself, um, such as what John just described. Um, and tell us about you know, the challenges and the approaches that you bring to integrating the community into the, you know, into the process and then having them shape the results of that, um, that plan. Sure, Aaron. Uh, so to your point, it's certainly um, 
a challenge to discuss a planning effort that may be more long-term with the community just simply in general. Uh, and uh, especially with a, a, a community we're working with closely here in the uh, greater Washington DC area to update a long range transportation plan. Uh, there is a specific emphasis on engaging uh, voices of the community that have traditionally not been uh, represented in the planning process. So taking this uh, technical work that can be um, not as tangible as a project, a specific project, and uh, creating relatable content, tailoring that content to identify how, how this plan is even relevant to an individual, uh, and then making sure that we engage people where they are and in, um, establish an inclusive process that um, is reflective of the full community uh, can be a challenge. Um, what we have uh, sought to do uh, with this specific project is um, really try to be inclusive and leverage some existing relationships in the communities. So uh, a couple um, examples I'll get into are um, community champions, identifying people who have established relationships in the communities and leveraging those existing trusted relationships and fostering uh, those community champions as trusted advisors for our process and uh, essentially equipping them with the content and some of the technical uh, information, uh, talking points, and um, bringing them on the project uh, as a champion and an advocate for the process, if you will, and uh, facilitating that relationship between the um, between the jurisdiction and the community. One thing that we have to be mindful of is that um, when we're trying to bring in the uh, traditionally non not traditionally underrepresented communities, uh, some of those the vulnerable populations uh, are experiencing an extra burden to participate in the process. Um, that burden is, is disproportionate to that vulnerable community in, in many cases because uh, there are other priorities that, that may rise above participating in a, a long range planning effort. And so we have to be intentional and mindful of how we're seeking uh, input. And I think recognizing that um, that there are barriers between us and the community uh, when we're trying to facilitate that relationship or, or foster a relationship uh, is important. Uh, and acknowledging that the exchange of information, uh, we're essentially, as a project team, seeking input, seeking feedback on some ideas. We want uh, priorities identified, you know, strategies developed, but it's really an exchange for the community sharing uh, their personal experience, whether as an individual or as a unit, and that that ask can be a lot on a community that's already um, experiencing some um, disproportionate burdens. So I think we have to be mindful when we approach um, any type of engagement of that, of those limitations and try to um, minimize those uh, burdens or those obstacles as, most as, as best as possible. So uh, the community champions would be one, um, establishing a relationship with an already existing trusted advisor in the community and um, harnessing them with some content and equipping them in a manner that will help them be an advocate for the project. And another is uh, through focus groups. We have um, found that establishing focus groups um, in different formats or different uh, mediums, whether it's in person or online, um, and, and, and establishing those uh, formats appropriate for the groups that we're um, seeking to engage with, right? So maybe the online format is not appropriate for a group where you wanna have an in-person intentional conversation, but it may be appropriate for the a working parent who would like to provide feedback. Um, but for some of those in-person meetings where we've been really intentional, we've staged them around where people are in their life um, and some of the shared experiences they may have. 
So uh, some of the unique groups that we've uh, sought out are um, specifically high school students because they're the future of the community, right? Like how do you want to live and experience? How do you currently experience moving around your community? And what do you see that experience like in 10 years from now? Um, we've also sought out um, intentional conversations with uh, persons with disabilities uh, and people in a, a more uh, senior group of the community. Um, we've had special focus groups or intentional conversations with individuals uh, solely in Spanish. So we've tailored our content and facilitated a discussion specifically in Spanish so that we can um, create dialogue and a, an environment where we're not just um, having a translator communicate to individuals um, in their native language, but we have members on our team um, who are native Spanish speakers and they're facilitating the conversation. Um, they are also transportation planners. And so they have um, this inherent um, uh, comfort level with individuals. Uh, so those are a couple ideas with the um, focus groups. Another um, element that we've employed and has been successful are pop-up meetings. We've taken it a step further, I think, in uh, some of our planning efforts popping up at a, at a bus stop or a transit station is common, but we've sought to go to where people are in their in their day-to-day -day life, right? So whether we're meeting you at the grocery store, uh, whether it's an international food market, um, so that we can um, meet you where you are living your life and be intentional about how we're bringing the technical content. Because I think sometimes as um, practitioners, we can get like bogged down with all of our jargon, but really making sure that our material is prepared and packaged in a way that it speaks to the individual and it's relevant so that I have a reason to want to participate in your process or even share with you my lived experience, so to speak. Um, so we've been to uh, grocery stores, um, soccer games, laundromats, um, essentially being in the community and being where the people are to uh, eliminate that barrier or, or that um, challenge of coming out and providing feedback. Um, so those are a couple ideas of what we've done to really try to increase the number of um, data points we have, recognizing that we've missed a lot of data in the past on some projects, you know, that there's a missing piece of data uh, that represents the lived experience or the desired experience from vulnerable communities. So we tried to be intentional and mindful about how we sought out that input. Thanks, Daniel. I've um, witnessed firsthand the passion that you bring into strategizing how to make those connections, preparing for those connections, um, you know, in terms of, you know, the who, what, when, where. Um, but I wonder if you could share a little bit about the how um, and specific, specifically the mindset you bring when you're going to a public engagement or having a conversation with an individual, um, how you prepare yourself to have that conversation with those, those, those individuals, what, you know, what your approach is to that, um, because I think that you have one that is just really real and genuine and really in, embraces that person and brings them into the fold. Um, so if you could, you know, sh share us a little bit of your, uh, of, of what you do there, um, that'd be great. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you, Aaron, for that question. Uh, I appreciate I appreciate the, the compliment and also the question. Uh, I will say that it, um, and this could just really be natural and just unique to me as a person, uh, but I think that being authentic and genuine about your intentions is really important. Um, people can sniff out if you're not, right? So if you really are to um, seek out or hear from an individual or a group 
you have to really come and be fully present. But before you arrive, I think it's important that you do your homework um, because we can't, um, we have to acknowledge that there is a difference between us, us being the technical team or the practitioners and the individuals we're seeking um, input or participation from. So acknowledging those differences, um, however they may appear and knowing that you need to do your homework to enter a space, right? You um, should not just show up and think that because you're here, someone's just gonna talk to you, but creating, um, being intentional about preparing, whether it's the material, the content that you're drafting or preparing that technical content, um, sifting through it and pulling out what is relevant and what will speak to the individuals and the communities you're talking to. Because if, if you're giving me your time, I wanna make sure that I am speaking to you as an individual. And I think that relevancy and um, context is really important. So doing your homework, making sure that you come prepared and that that technical content is in a manner that is digestible by whomever you're speaking with. Um, and also recognizing that once you arrive um, for you to have intentional dialogue, and this is just me personally, like in work or not, if, if I'm communicating or engaging with someone, um, they are likely sharing with me some personal part of me. And for them to provide that, I need to create an environment where they're comfortable to do that. So I think um, being present, being genuine and authentic, those are things that just uh, you have to be mindful of because as as planners, we want to be good steward of the information that they provide us, uh, but I don't think we're going to get that information if we're not um, coming at it from a, an authentic uh, perspective. Um, so showing up is one, but I think you have to be intentional and once you get there, be fully present and uh, honest and just um, transparent as, as best as possible. And then you'll get to a place where you can have that dialogue. Thanks, Danielle. Um, I appreciate you sharing a little bit more about you know, your own approach there. Um, Amy, I'm curious um, if you have any reaction in the context of your role with Dimitri House to the points that Danielle had just made about, you know, the, the means in which she is um, preparing to have court communication with members of the public and, and the approach she brings to those conversations. Yeah, I, I really, I loved hearing um, you know, the focus and the goal of engaging the community as a whole and engaging, you know, not just government, not just transportation experts, but really engaging and listening and discussing with the people that this affects on an everyday basis. Um, I think that it's important that we look at the history um, of each situation here in Rochester specifically, looking at the history of the Interloop project that we're all uh, focused on today, um, you know, that history matters, uh, you know, here in Rochester, you know, in order to implement the interloop back in the 50s, the late 50s, you know, they raised hundreds of houses and, um, you know, really took out a large swath of an entire neighborhood. There were churches and businesses and and although the late 1950s, and it might seem like a long time ago, there are still, you know, plenty of families that were displaced and who lost some connections within their community. So you have to really um, listen to them and, and hear them and understand what it is that uh, has affected them and how it has affected them. Um, I expect that my role um, within the greater uh, discussion is really to advise to advocate, to sort of educate both myself um, and others. Um, you know, my 
coming from the um, the not-for-profit side of the house, you know, I'm considering equity and transportation in a different way than government or an engineer or someone who's driving a car every day. Um, you know, I'm trying to think of it and look at it from the context of folks who are pedestrians, who may ride their bicycles, who are pushing strollers or grocery carts, who are trying to accomplish um, some different things than maybe uh, you know folks driving in from the suburbs to get to downtown are, are trying to accomplish. So I think the, the project team here um, is focused on taking into account uh, some of the history and you know the I think we phrased it the intergenerational trauma um, that existed from the project as a whole. Um, and really listening to people and find out, uh, you know, what the needs are today, what sort of things we are lacking in our community and how the Interloop project specifically can address some of those needs, but can also address and be respectful to the history that comes along with the project. Um, you know, bringing those voices of the community forward, understanding where they're coming from, and really including as many people uh, with the most diverse backgrounds that we possibly can, um, you know, racial, gender, uh, all sorts of different, um, you know, voices and, and um, perspectives, I think is really important. Um, so I think what's important for us, is, in my view, is that we've put together this committee um, that includes a ton of community members, which is great. Uh, I think that we're getting a lot of input. We have additionally, um, within the Interloop project, we have established a racial equity subcommittee. Um, and that committee that I am also a part of has really been discussing you know, how we address the historical wrongs that were done within our community. How, how do we address them? How can we? What's the right answer? How much can we address? Um, and things like that. So, so far it's going very well. There's been a, a, you know, a lot of homework that everyone has done. We've, I've learned a tremendous amount about the history of my own community that I lived in and never even knew. Um, and it's been great. And I think, you know, one of the things that I am hopeful that we can focus on moving forward is giving some some tangible, measurable um, suggestions, um, and and bringing those to the overall team to say, hey, here's you know three things that we think would be very impactful. Um, this is how we would measure the success of, of those suggestions, and this is why we think those are important. Um, so I, I think that so far it's been great uh, here in Rochester, and I think you know hearing hearing transportation engineers look at projects um, from a more uh, social aspect, from a, a racial diversity aspect and equity aspect is something that um, is, I would say, new. Um, it is not something that necessarily occurred, certainly didn't occur in years past when these projects were being brought into communities. Um, so I think that so far it's going in really well. And you know, Dimitri House has been a part of some of these conversations and this planning, you know, really focused around our clientele uh, and how these projects are going to affect, you know, our clients and those folks that we see and work with every day. Thanks, Amy. That's really helpful perspective. Um, John, would you, um, would you mind taking us one step back about the Rochester Interloop project sure. um, and give us a little bit more background and um, understanding of what that project is? 
The project is officially called the Rochester Interloop North Transformation Project. So it's, it's one step beyond transportation, it's transformation. It is, as, as Amy said, it's, um, it is a project to, to overcome what was done in the 50s and the early 60s, the communities that were there. Um, so it is a classic example of a pre-NEPA transportation project decided upon by decision makers that, that, that took the path of least resistance and, and aligned a freeway in, in a downtown area um, predominantly through uh, neighborhoods that were predominantly black. Um, back in, so the project began in 1952 and was finished in 1965. It was a 13-year construction period. And back then, the city had, back in the early 50s, the city had something like 350,000 people in the city. Um, they even had their own NBA team. Um, and the city was predominantly white. Uh, the black population was about 5%. And most black people lived in either Cornhill, which is just in the south of downtown, or uh, in the northeast part of the city. Well, the alignment for the inner loop went through both of these areas. Um, so the inner loop freeway um, was was intended to be to, to, to do what other urban renewal and urban freeways did back in the 50s and 60s was focus on the, on the automobile. It was an auto-centric solution to transportation that Back then, people thought it was all about the automobile. People were going to live in the suburbs and come into the, into the city, and what better way to get around than this freeway? Well, over, over time, for a variety of reasons, the population in Rochester has declined. Those freeways aren't needed anymore. The, the volume of traffic on those freeways is, is akin to a, a minor arterial. Um, so there is this opportunity to transform those old transportation facilities into something else. And that something else really should be reconnecting the neighborhoods that were, as Amy said, um, affected to the point where there is trauma. There's intergenerational trauma in those communities where friends, neighbors, aunts, uncles, cousins had to move away from others who, who could remain, where churches were lost, schools were lost. Um, and, and, it, and it has it has adversely affected the community to the point where they have formed um, that subcommittee that Amy is on. The city leaders are, are very keen on making amends, on, on hearing voices from, from the community, hearing a diverse set of voices. And that's why there is this racial equity subcommittee that Amy is on and this community advisory committee that Amy is also on. Um, and it's really cool that my friend Amy Edwards is part of this project. Uh, Amy and I and, and her husband have gotten to know each other because our kids went to high school together. And that's how we knew each other in, in this community. Um, and so to be able to work together this way is, is, is very rewarding. Um, and, and part of, of this Rochester Interloop transformation study, this north part, is building upon the success of the east part of the loop. There's an eastern segment, east and southeast segment, that has already been completed. Um, that segment was transformed into land that was is being developed today. Um, they they are there are bike trails, there are parks, there's open space, um, passive and active recreation space, sidewalks. Um, the, the the parcels that have resulted from that project are being developed with housing um, for all income levels, uh, retail, office, you name it, and people are 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 moving into that area. Um, 
And so the vision for the Interloop North project is the same, is to transform that corridor back to a, a community that everybody can be a proud of it. And, and part of the effort involves building trust with the community. So a huge part of the effort on the part of the transportation planners is to build trust. Well, that starts with hearing from the voices of the community, like Amy, and bringing, bringing those folks into, into the discussion so they can, they can share their, their ideas and share their stories and make sure that, that the history is understood and we learn from the past and we apply those lessons learned as we move forward to transform that corridor. So, Amy, I really appreciate you being a part of that project. Thank you, it's been great. And I look forward to seeing where we end up uh, with the plan and, and, and what, what the recommendations are. If, if anyone is interested, there is a project website and it's simply innerloopnorth.com. Lots of good information on that project website. Thank you, John, Aaron, Danielle, and Amy, and thank you all for listening. Join us next week for part two of our conversation on equity and transportation, where we'll discuss the responsibility planners have to involve the communities they serve and dive into examples from across the country.